0: And they go, oh, yep, um, all that $5,000 went into redos. Well, where's the evidence? You know, who, which patients, what what work needed redoing?
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Dental Health Star podcast. My name is Erica Quinn, and for this month's feature, we are joined by someone who needs no introduction. It's Nerve Cash App. Job hunting season is just around the corner and we're starting to see the first sproutings of job ads being sprinkled across the forums. And there's that chatter and buzz and nervous excitement amongst final years as they start looking for their first jobs. It's also the same time for recent grads who are after a change of scenery to start looking for a new job and begin their next chapter. Now, where do you want to go? Public, private, metro, rural, big corporate, mini corporate, a small family practice? There are so many decisions to have to make. Will this be the right fit? Will it not? What are red flags to look out for? And how on earth do we read these contracts? Year after year, graduates have the same questions and concerns. And so we wanted to record an episode to tackle the most commonly asked questions when it comes to job hunting. And I couldn't think of anyone more suitable to address the topic and share insight into the industry than Nove, a well-established practice owner who has hired dozens of graduates over the years and is a very prominent vocal and dark night figure on pages like DPR who is passionate about standing up and looking out for new grads and ensuring that they are treated rightly and fairly in their workplaces. And so this episode is for all the final year students, but also recent grads. And particularly those who aren't sure if they're in the right environment for them, but are at a bit of a loss as to what to do. I really hope this episode helps answer many of the questions you guys have. But if you do have any more burning questions that you want answers or need help on, then feel free to reach out because we're more than happy to help answer them. But before we get into the episode, I'm going to hand it over to Hayden's Corner to talk about our August Giving Project, which for those who have followed us over the years know that it is our yearly tradition to do a little tribute to baby Asha and to share our love with David and his family by supporting the Humpty Dumpty Foundation. And so I'll hand it over to Hayden to share a little bit more about this month's tribute.
2: Hello, listeners of the podcast. For our August Giving Project... We are looking to pledge another $1,000 to the Humpty Dumpty Foundation in tribute of baby Ash's passing two years ago. The Humpty Dumpty Foundation, if you're not aware, is a charity group that's goal is to ensure that hospitals and health services that care for children have the essential and often life-saving medical equipment that is needed to save lives. If you would also like to donate to Ash's Gift and support the Humpty Dumpty Foundation, the link will be provided in the show notes. And now it's time for Erica and Nov's feature.
1: Well, Nov, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast, or should I say welcome back, because (laughs) you've been on In The Past as one of our very first guests back when David interviewed you.
0: Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Erica. It has been a little while, but it was interesting. I was at that gala ball that you were also at, and quite a few of the dentists that came up to me, recent grads, mentioned that they'd heard me on this podcast a, a long time ago. So it's good to be back on.
1: Yeah, and what we've spoken about before in the past as well, Nov, is just how it's interesting. Obviously, you've been in the industry for a number of years now. You've been a practice owner for many years, hired dozens of grads yourself, and spoken quite widely about the topic, both on or both at conferences and webinars, but also um, on DPR through comments and posts. But I think what's interesting is that. A lot of themes are evergreen and they don't change despite the years. Have you noticed that yourself?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are parts of dentistry, yeah, you know, the business of dentistry, graduate outcomes, and the rest of that that do evolve. But generally, yeah, lots of lots of different themes said evergreen.
1: So, what we wanted to cover essentially those topics that time and time again we hear people asking or questions that people have, the common themes that we see, you know, people posting on DPR about. And yeah, just going through that in depth today, essentially mainly about job hunting, finding the right job for you and yeah, how to assess that and be the best dentist that you can be. What I wanted to ask you first, Nove, is you mentioned before that yeah, some things, one of the things that has changed is just graduate outcomes and what it's like for new grads. And would you agree that times have changed for new grads? In the sense of what it's like for them in terms of their growth, in terms of job hunting and mentorship, say in the last five to 10 years compared to when you were a grad yourself?
0: Yeah, look, definitely. I think speaking to owners that have been owners for quite a while, I think there's definitely been a shift in perhaps the quality of teaching at university or the, or the exposure to procedures especially more complex procedures. And while, you know, uh, I think grads previously compared more favorably than more recent grads, what I am seeing is if you look at the average grad one or two years out versus the average grad one or two years out, you know, 10 years ago um, or, or 15 years ago, you know, when back when I graduated or we came out with a bit more procedural experience back then. But certainly after one or two years, I think the average grad now is is a lot more savvy, I guess, with some of the more complex procedures. You know, it was unheard of for a grad back in 15 years ago to, to be doing implants or full mouth rehab in their second year. That's not beyond many grads these days. So I think it's a it's a wider shift in the industry towards the more complex procedures. But I think social media has played the biggest role in uh, evolving dentists and their clinical ability post-graduation. And I think, you know, what that literally comes down to is the fact that back when social media wasn't a huge influence on dentistry, people weren't seeing what other dentists were doing. So they weren't challenging themselves. They weren't, you know, seeing someone that they went to uni with do an amazing smile makeover or full mouth rehab one or two years out of uni and, you know, not realizing that they're capable of it. But now with the open sharing that social media allows, uh, you know, you see a lot of that. And I think it has just raised the general level of dentistry especially with the more complex cases
1: it's interesting right people always say it's a double-edged sword where social media and we talk about it time and time again on the podcast as well is it's one of the biggest factors that has led to people growing so much and social media in terms of people sharing their work but also people teaching and sharing cases and discussing you know learning points on them but also webinars and podcasts and all this like newfound cpd access that people that like new grads have has just really helped um, them grow. But on the flip side, it also ends up being a source of a lot of comparison and can lead to a lot of insecurity and, yeah, detrimental mindsets as well, which I think is something we'll talk about towards the later half of this episode, just how to combat that and whatnot. But I wanted to do your thoughts on why do you think people have mentioned that nowadays practice owners favour hiring new grads. Would you agree? And why do you think that's the case? Look, I
0: don't agree that they favour hiring new grads, but I think they're definitely far more open to it as as a group than they were previously. But I think that's more a function of just the availability of experienced dentists and the number of grads that are coming out and the demand, the underlying demand in dentistry over the last three years. I mean, obviously, with the economy going the way it is, we are seeing a bit of a lull. You know, some practices are seeing a bit of a lull. But the fact that people are hiring new grads is not because they're they're preferring it. It's just because it's a function of supply and demand, Um, like almost anything in life. um, You know, uh, just the demand for our services has increased, the supply of... Um, experienced dentists is just not there to cope with the demand and so we're just seeing dentists more open to hiring new grads you know the funny thing is you know we we developed a grad program obviously a very long time ago I'm not going to talk about that but I've been pretty public with that but we developed it at a time where we knew that um, experienced dentists wouldn't always be as easy to hire as they were back then and a lot of owners who had never really hired grads or hired one grad and things hadn't gone well made uh, formed an opinion uh, that has just withstood time for them until they reached a time where they had no choice but to hire grads. You know their practices were busy, uh, but there weren't any applicants that were experienced, so um, you know they, they were kind of forced into it. And I think honestly, I think that's been the largest thing. They've exposed themselves to grad. They've seen how you need to mentor someone, um, the support you need to provide them. Um, grads are more aware of what they want mentoring wise than they ever have been before. And so I think that's just led to some really great outcomes for owners and they've just decided to, to you know, go for more grads, I guess.
1: If you're on the hunt to upgrade your current pair of loops, or if you're a student looking to invest in your very first pair, let's talk about Admatech Loops by Byron Medical. Last year, just about everyone around me was showing off their brand new pair of refractive loops with a wireless butterfly light that had just hit the market. I had to get on board and I'm pleased to say I've not looked back, or should I say down, since... Lightweight, sturdy and stylish, Admatex Ergo Loops are designed to optimize your posture so you're not popping a disc trying to prep the distal of that 4.7. Level up your scales and cleans when you can actually see every tiny fleck of calculus fly off the tooth. With a tiny battery light that clips on magnetically and switches out seamlessly even mid-procedure, say goodbye to getting tangled in your wires and the painful indents on your nose bridge from having to support heavy loops biomedical are australian based and are quick and easy to get in touch with and address any issues you have they'll even come out to your workplace for your initial consult and fitting session so look no further pardon the puns and join the club and if you mention dental head start they'll even throw in a special added bonus right now we're pretty much entering job hunting season you know right now it's what late August um, and a lot of students in their final years are going to start hunting for jobs and I guess you know I was in that position last year then you start wondering okay we're entering the big wide world of dentistry but there are so many different avenues to go down it can be quite confusing to decide what's the best fit for you and what I found interesting is just being six seven months in is seeing where all my friends have ended up as well and it's funny that you know six years six months ago we were all in the same position just students more or less at the same level but we've all ended up in practices that I think have suited or either haven't suited um, what our individual needs goals and passions and desires are and you realize that what works for one person won't necessarily work for another person and it's a can be a bit of a journey to discover what that right fit is. But perhaps we can break it down for all our listeners in terms of just the different types of jobs you can get yourselves in, thinking from you know, a student's perspective where they don't really know much about the industry, they don't really know the difference between a traditional dental practice versus a mini corporate versus a bigger corporate and whatnot. I think we're going to, for the sake of simplicity and time, perhaps exclude public from this discussion. We've talked about it before in the podcast um, and we have other episodes relating to it, but I think we'll focus primarily on the different avenues that one can seek when going for a private job. And do you reckon you can kind of break down the pros and cons of those different
0: types? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: jobs, no?
0: Yeah, definitely. Look, I think I think one way to categorise them is exactly as you've done, which is the different types of practices. And I think if we categorise them in that way, you've got a, a small solo owner practice who's hiring their first associate and that associate Happens to be a graduate or just a small practice, generally, you know, one or two chairs where you're the second or, or third associate. So that's one category. And I'll just define the categories first, then we can run through them. The second category is, is more just your one larger practice. So I'm talking larger, four or five chairs plus, multi associate, uh, but still just the one site that the owner owns. And then you move to what I would consider ourselves to be which is like a mini corporate still privately owned multiple practices you know full breadth of dentistry being offered amongst a whole you know let's say 15 20 30 associates possibly more and then you shift into the full corporates who you know the Pacific Smiles 1300 Smiles Maven Cura you know that NDC that whole I guess gamut of of companies. So as you're moving through them, you know, I'll start off with the experienced. Uh, sorry, with the corporates, the larger ones. I think a lot of negativity that comes from about corporates is from dentists who have had very little experience actually working inside a corporate and have formed a judgment. You know, um, often more traditional older dentists who uh, view the corporatization of dentistry as a real negative thing. But for me personally, you know, one of the things that you will see potentially in a smaller practice or even, you know, a little bit of a larger single practice is things not being completely up to speed as far as infection control goes at times. Corporates, you just won't see that, right? They've got a lot to lose. They've got teams that are in charge of infection control. And if there are problems, there are individual problems to the site, which are picked up pretty quickly by their own internal audit, auditing, auditing teams or you know, the staff or, or dentists that work at those practices. So I think that's certainly one advantage. From a regulatory perspective, um, the corporates, I think, have it right. Um, In almost all aspects. In terms of paying dentists, you know, um, you'd see me pretty prolific on DPR talking about owners don't do the right thing as far as paying goes? Well, you can. I can say you can almost never have to worry about that as far as a corporate goes. So their their advantages. Usually, corporates, because of their need to hire many dentists, have a pretty good, robust graduate program. And uh, and I think that's one of the advantages in that they have you know, a graduate sort of uh, program that's uh, they're experienced in delivering that has produced some great outcomes. I think one of the disadvantages though is sometimes the experience that a graduate has is dependent upon the practice principle. And if they're not willing to mentor and they're not um, keeping their end of the bargain with the corporate, which is often to provide mentoring to the newer dentists, then your experience can be subpar as far as mentoring goes. Look, I think that could potentially be one of the disadvantages. The other disadvantage of the corporate that gets thrown around a lot that I've honestly not seen much evidence of is these things. Um, you know, people talk about KPIs and and how corporates make you work fast. They make you. You know, I've honestly not heard of that or seen of that in any corporate operating in Australia at the moment. I've seen it a lot in dentist-owned practices. Um, I've seen it a lot in um, you know many corporates, but I, I you don't often encounter that. In corporates, So, look, I think that's one of the advantages, especially for a new recent grad that, that you know, has the ability to, uh, well, they, they get the ability to just ease into the profession and not have to work to really strong KPIs and stuff. Look, I think, I think the big advantage of a grad in any type of practice is a practice that has never hired a grad before. And the big, biggest disadvantage that, that comes with that, and often this is in a solo practice or like a, a medium to large practice or even a, multi, a mini corporate that's never hired a grad before, although that's less common. Usually mini corporates have had to hire grads. Um, but if you work for an owner who has never hired a grad before, one of the problems that can occur is their only point of reference is the experienced dentist that they've worked with in the past. And so they can kind of compare you to someone five, seven, 10 years out, or whatever they've become used to working with, or even themselves, you know, if they've been isolated and never really had many associates. And that can be an unfair benchmark for a graduate to live up to. So look, I think that's Certainly, one of the disadvantages of of a dentist own practice, and that could be at any size, really. I think one of the other disadvantages I already touched on is infection control type breaches, you know, the inability to get paid. Now, these are rare things. Like, this is, you know, you don't see many practices out there with infection control issues. You don't see many practices out there. You know, I see a lot because they all come to me when they haven't been paid. But when you look at it as a percentage of the entire industry, it is still very small. So these are not things that people have to be alarmed about um, per se. It's, It's more something that they have to kind of be cautious about, I guess. And I guess we'll probably talk about that a bit more later. In terms of advantages of dentist-owned practice, I think one of the advantages of a solo-owned practice is if the owner is dedicated to mentoring because it's their own practice and they want someone who can upskill quickly to look after their established patient base and do it well, then you get the one-on-one attention of that owner. I think the disadvantage of that, though, is that, you know, your habits and your the way, the type of dentist you become, the dentistry you do are kind of limited by the scope and ability of that owner. And so, you know, I think if you're looking to work for a practice that, that has a solo owner and they're going to be the main mentor, then you've got to really make sure that their clinical philosophy matches yours and the clinical aims you have for yourself in the short, medium, term are able to be fulfilled by that person like that you know if you want to do wisdom teeth surgery and they refer out all wisdom teeth well it's probably not the best practice for you to work at just as an example i think that's one of the things and the other thing with solo owned practices that can be a disadvantage is uh, often those owners are quite experienced they've they've done their you know hard yards in dentistry and they're in a different mode um what i mean by that is often they'll take regular and long holidays and that will mean that you'll be by yourself quite often, right? If you obviously continue to work. So that's something to, I guess, just be aware of. And as you move into, you know, sort of like the multi-associate three, four chair practice, uh, you know, four chairs plus, then you get the advantage of exposure to many different associates. Sometimes the principals will be working part-time or, or even be hands-off completely. The profits generated by those bigger practices mean that the principal doesn't, they rely less on their own income or their own clinical work to generate an income. And this can be disadvantageous because there's no real impetus for, there's no real impetus for the dentists um, that work there that are just associates to upskill you. You know, if anything, there's a disadvantage because um, you will become the clinical competition for, um, you know, in this economy, a drying pool of patients. So, uh, you know, you've kind of, got to weigh that up right yeah if principal's not there to mentor are the associates going to really mentor and often you'll go to practices like this and they'll say that oh yeah everyone's willing to help out the grad but the reality can be very different so you've got to watch out for that now the mini corporates I think are a good balance uh, between a corporate which you know comes with all the things that corporates come with and you know family values I guess it's still a dentist-owned business and often um, it's it's a bit of a mix between you know that four or five chair practice and the big corporates. Um, and so, look, I think the advantages you'll get is clinical exposure. But again, um, you can have associates that are unwilling to mentor. Often the principal is, makes up a very small portion of the clinical in these big, at least they make up a very small portion of the clinical at any one site because, you know, they're multi-site. So even if they are working four days a week, five days a week, and but that spread one day a week at each site, um, well, unless you're with them at the practice they're at every day, then you're relying on associates for mentoring and help and to bail you out. And that can be a lottery, as I said. So look, I think generally speaking, um, it really comes down to the practice. You know, the advantages and disadvantages I've talked about are very general in nature. They're Definitely do not apply to every practice of that category. Certain things you see more in a certain type of practice than you do the other. I know that's a long answer, Erica. It feels like you asked me that question, um, you know, fifteen minutes ago or something. But um, no, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I think you answered it really comprehensively, though. I, I had myself on mute because I was sniffling the whole time, Nove. But um, everything you were saying was just—I was like, yes, that's that's exactly it. Like checking off all these points that I had comments on or. Um, wanted to get your thoughts on exactly. And as I said earlier, that, you know now being seven months in I've seen all my friends in their different positions and being in all these different environments you know friends being in big corporates people being in a practice where it's just them and the principal dentist slash practice owner or being in a mini corporate where it's mainly associate dentists and the principal dentist is less involved and I guess it's you can't find you can't find the 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 dream job right like not everything well maybe some people do right but you can't really get the best of or outcomes. It's kind of a bit of a trade off and I think it differs for every person as to what works for them. Like some people thrive in those big corporates, but I've had friends who are in those environments who they feel like, yeah, they're being or big corporates slash mini corporates where they feel like they're being pressured to, you know, hit an hourly rate or to do a certain number of crown preps or to propose big treatment plans. And it's very business focused. But then I've got, you know, friends who are in an environment where, yeah, they're with the pra- the principal owner and it's just the two of them and they get a lot of one-on-one mentoring and a lot of guidance but then some days they're left on their own and they're, you know, forced to fend for themselves because the practice, uh, practice owner is gone. Or as you said before, you're entirely dictated by their treatment philosophy and you don't really get a broader scope of opinions and different treatment philosophies. We do say, like, you know, dentistry, it gives – 10 different dentists, a scenario, and they'll all treat it differently. But when you're in a practice where you're entirely guided by just that principal dentist, that's the only treatment philosophy that you're influenced by, right? And then I've also seen that situation where, you know, when you're in an environment where the practice owner is a lot more hands-off, look, if they're floating around in the clinic, then I guess as a practice owner, they're less dependent on seeing patients for income. So they're okay palming off patients to a new grad to get experience whilst they hover outside the door or come in and assist, but there's a lot less incentive for an associate dentist to do it. They might come in to bail you out if you're stuck or give you a second opinion, but they've got busy books and their own patients to treat as well. And so I think in that environment, as you said, unless there's a more external, well-established graduate program or mentoring system, then you may not get as much one-on-one with your, someone looking over your shoulder in that kind of environment.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, with the mini-corporates, I think a lot of mini-corporates have a good established graduate program and often they've hired lots of graduates so they experience with, um, you know, the full scope of um Uh, a full range of graduate ability I guess you know some graduates obviously hit the ground running straight away some graduates take a bit longer but mini corporates usually have a large enough sample size that they've experienced all of that and they uh, know how to sort of mentor all of that so I think that's definitely one of the advantages of a lot of the mini corporates
2: As dentists and dental students, we all have difficult days. You may experience workplace or training demands that have a direct impact on your physical, emotional and psychological health and well-being. This is exactly what dental practitioner support is for. It's a completely confidential and independently run service that's funded by the Dental Board of Australia in an effort to support practitioners and dental students right across the country.
1: What about working at multiple practices? Whether that be within the same corporation or whether that be at with different clinics, with different practice owners? You know, I think some new grads find it difficult to find full-time work straight off the bat and they might be doing part time at multiple places or some of them prefer to do part time in a few different areas. Um what do you reckon of that?
0: Look, I think it's I think it's a great thing. Like, you know, I don't see it um as a negative. I, I know all the grads we hire work at multiple practices. I don't think any of them work at just one practice. They work at two, potentially three of our practices. I think, you know, if they were separate dentists, I think the same thing. You know, as long as they're far enough apart that neither of the owners sees it as a conflict of interest, then I think it's great. And I think the advantages are that you get exposure to different dentists and different mentoring, um, not just the same dentist and the same mentoring. You also potentially get exposure to different types of patients, depending on the socioeconomic area that the practices are in. Often, you know, if you're working full time versus if you've got two part time jobs, the part time jobs will often, and this is, is not always the case, will often be busier. Um, because you know, if they've only opened you for two days a week, it's it's often easier to fill those two days a week than it is, you know, a full five day schedule. Especially if they're opening that book um, and you're not replacing an outgoing dentist, which which often, if they hire a graduate, um, they're looking to grow their book. Um, so I think there are some advantages, but, but look, I think the biggest advantage is that you have the ability to kind of almost have a reserve. If you've got a bad experience at one, you can put that into perspective, uh, especially when you've got something to compare it to. One thing that I would warn graduates again against is, is listening too much to their friends, especially if their friends are overly complimentary of their own job because I, f- I found this a lot, that graduates – talk very favorably. You know, they almost don't even want to lose face in front of their friends. They want to say that, you know, um, I've especially if you're not super close friends, that that I'm having a great time, you know, my job's the best. And so, you know, I think that you've just got to be careful of that and, and take things with a grain of salt. You know, we talk about people always posting the best side of themselves on social media. It's the same thing when people talk about jobs, you know. So I think that's something to, to sort of just be a bit wary of. But yeah, look, I think there's lots of advantages of having multiple um, positions. And, and one of them is that you can really compare two or three places and, and r- get an exposure. By getting that broad exposure, you, you can find out what's going to be best for you long term, what style of dentistry you want to do, what type of practice you want to be in. And you don't always get that just being at the one practice.
1: Yeah, Some com- a comment that I saw someone make a post about the other day, it was something I hadn't considered previously, but then I guess I am in kind of that situation because I work at three different practices and two of them I'm only at once a day. I'm sorry, once a day, once a week.
0: <laughs> once oh, a day you'd a hope week. you're only at a practice once
1: a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, once a week. But someone made a comment where they said um, a disadvantage of that is that you know, if you have a patient that's come in for treatment and then they have a problem, they're not able to see you until the following week. Or if you're fully booked out, they're not going to be able to see you for another two, three weeks. And then they may end up in another dentist's book or, um, yeah, and then you may lose them to that or you're not able to follow up on your own, um, not necessarily mistakes, but just the follow ups. What do you think of that? I guess I've kind of been in that situation a little bit where I've seen a patient on a Wednesday and they've come back because they need an adjustment for a filling or a crown and they've had to go see another dentist or after an extraction. And the part of me feels guilty because I haven't been able to see the patient myself. And part of it does feel like, oh, is this a, like a stump to my own learning because I'm not reviewing them myself? And you know, if I get the heads up from the other dentist, they'll tell me they've seen that patient. Or sometimes I only find out afterwards if I check the patients don't know if they've come back again and they say oh I've seen the other dentist. Um, I don't know what do you think on that kind of situation?
0: I think the long-term follow-up of patients is important because it gives you feedback on your clinical work you know if you see patients um, three years later, four years later, five years later, eight years later and you've done some major treatment on them you get to track your work. Look I think short-term follow-up I'll just be honest is, is really overrated right there's a couple of things to consider um, you know what what kinds of treatments do you do where there's a short-term follow-up needed? Um, dry sockets, obviously a clear one, right? Uh, extractions in smokers where you warn them and, and they still get a dry socket. But often if you're working at multiple practices and you, you're you working part-time, there's other associates that are working part-time. So you might not see your own dry socket, but you'll, you'll probably see someone else's, right? Um, so, you know, the management of a dry socket in itself and, and the management of you know, a feeling breaking, if your feelings are breaking often, you will definitely get told about them. Um, and you probably only get told about it just, just once. So, you know, if you're coming in and you're seeing that a patient came back, it's usually for something minor, you know, it might be a little bite adjustment, it might be whatever it is. Um, and especially if you're coming into that practice weekly, you know, most patients are happy to wait, uh, like, you know, you do a feeling on a Wednesday, they only realize they have a problem on a Friday. And so then, you know, do they wait till Wednesday or they come in that day? Well, there's no appointments that day. You can come in Monday, but if you wait two more days, all of that. So look, uh, I think, um, I think... Yeah, the short term follow up thing, honestly, I think is overblown. And and most of the time, people aren't just working one day a week in the practice, right? They're working often two days a week. And and most of the time, those two days are separated by a couple of days. Um, they're not necessarily consecutive days. And so, yeah, you do have still the chance to see that. Um, but for me, follow up is important, but more medium and long term follow up than, than necessarily short term follow up.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. I think overall the advantages of being part-time at, at a few different practices and seeing the different, um, yeah, ways clinics function. I know I guess personally having worked at, multiple different practices. It also keeps the week interesting, I think. You're not seeing the same people, the same patients all the time. You're just in a different environment. It keeps things exciting. Like I know every Monday morning when I go to work, actually today, I went into work today and my front office reception, the other dentists, even our practice manager is like, oh, my God, Eric, I haven't seen you for a whole week. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it's nice to go and be missed, right, rather than you know, going into the same place every day and they're like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> Um, but, no, that's that's the, I guess, from the different practices, multiple practices. We talked about, you know, different demographics and whatnot. What about rural versus metro? This is a hot topic that people often want to know, you know, the pros and cons to working metro versus regional slash rural, um, pros and cons to both. What do you reckon?
0: Look, I think if you go pure clinical, right, let's say you don't have any life commitments, you don't have any um, – interests that need you to be in one place over the other, pure clinical, I would have to say just, just as I said, pure clinical. Um, and I know I'm probably going to get fire on the forums from this, but purely clinical, um, I think hands down rural is better than metro. So if I was a grad that had no attachment to a metro area, I would go rural. Um, but if I had an attachment, let's say, for example, family, friends, um, nightlife, good restaurants, you know, the ability to um, be close to an airport so you can go overseas, all of those life commitments, then that that balances things, right? But I think what you're exposed to in rural um, communities uh, is just a much wider range of dentistry. And the thing is rural owners struggle to find dentists. So they're more willing to be more accommodating to the dentists they do find, you know, it's not like they can just go, Oh, well, if that doesn't work, I'll just get another one. Um, So, you know, uh, it's hard to get a grad to go rural um, or it's harder, I should say. Um, But the opportunities I think available for grads you know, are immense. So from pure clinical point of view, you know, if you have absolutely no no qualms about moving anywhere in Australia, get a good large rural practice that does the full breadth of dentistry and offer them a commitment you know three five years. you will come back from that um and you may even decide to stay rural, but if not, you'll come back to that on average a much better dentist than you would if you went pure metro that's that's my honest honest thoughts on it on the balance of things though it's not just a pure clinical decision and the lifestyle rurally is not amazing in a lot of places, you know, especially if you're someone who has become accustomed to the city life. And the more rural or the more remote you go, the more your lifestyle suffers. So, you know, you're, there, you're learning, uh, you know, earning lots, learning lots, <laughs> you've got nothing to do with your money, right? Um, and so uh, that can be a big disadvantage, obviously, um, especially in the non-coastal rural towns like um you know i'm not going to name any but like coastal towns bigger towns more touristy towns is probably a little bit more to do so yeah i think you have to weigh that up and i think one of the big things you have got to look out for is accommodation um i wrote a post about this but right now accommodation is hard to get anywhere but it's especially hard in rural areas and that being the case you know you don't want to be signing a contract for a job um, in a rural area unless you're very very uh uh, sure that you've got some accommodation locked up. So, you know, that's something to, to sort of look out for.
1: Yeah, it's something that I, when I was in my final year as well, initially I was thinking, yeah, definitely I'm going to consider, strongly consider going rural because I think I was looking at it purely from a clinical perspective and like,
0: yeah, yeah, I was gonna yeah say lifestyle the so- doesn't
1: matter. We're in it for the...
0: <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say the social butterfly that you are, um, I'm not sure how you would have gone, honestly, in, um, <laughs> well, in rural. Well, was, that
1: was exactly... That was exactly it, right? Initially, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to hustle. I want to get all the clinical experience that I can. Um, you know, Everyone says rural is when you're going to learn the most. And so I thought it would be good. But then when I started thinking about it seriously, I realized all the people that I knew that had gone rural were either in relationships where both partners were working rurally at different practices or at the same practice so they had each other as support or people going with a group of friends and then they were living together as housemates. And, you know, I've got some good friends that are living, um, working rurally six hours out of Sydney, but they live in a share house where there's like four of them. They're all new graduate dentists. Um, And in that way, they have that inbuilt support system. And I realised, actually, if you're going on your own to a rural town with no one around you, like I've moved to Brisbane not knowing anyone (laughs) prior to this year, right? And that in itself was already difficult and that's going to a big city where there's a big network already right compared to if you're going to rural and you don't know anyone and there's not that big of an environment i think it does take a toll and you have to start thinking the sustainability of that and also just you know balancing how stressful dentistry is um it can be very isolating if you don't start thinking about how it plays into your overall lifestyle Look, I think, I think
0: one thing to mention that's important is in this economy, um, with the difficulty um, of, uh, you know, like patient spending habits, you know, we hear, we're hearing a lot about the economy. So I won't go on about that. But there's something to be said about going rural in this economy, you know, uh, going uh, and working, you know, setting yourself a goal. Two, three years, I want to go, I want to learn, I want to earn, come back. You know, you can often have enough savings for a really substantial deposit in a house. Um, maybe, maybe not in, in a Sydney, but, um, you know, everywhere else, um, you know, you can have a, you can have a good deposit on a house. You can be quite set up for the time when, you know, you transition to the new phase of your life, you know, marriage, kids, all the rest of that sort of stuff. Um, so I think, uh, you know, especially when, uh, you know, there's practices in Sydney that are dead at the moment, there's, you know, there just hardly any patients, um, I heard about it from many dentists, uh yeah, rural really becomes much more attractive um, in that scenario. So, you know, I wouldn't uh, like, yes, lifestyle factors come into it, but, uh, you know, two years of sacrifice more um, and then coming back to metro areas with, you know, a large increase in knowledge um, and uh, substantial savings, you know, something to be said for that. Um, Now, this is not to say that you can't get the exposure in metro jobs. You know, I mean, like all my all my practices are in metro areas so uh, I'd be I'd be um, uh, stirring people away from my own practices by saying that but to be honest um you know if you get the right practices in Metro you also get amazing exposure and so yeah it's it's not just it, you know, I guess I'm talking averages here you know I'm talking um, over a large sample size generally clinically rural will be better
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure you mentioned before nerve about you know before signing any contract you um, making sure that you had accommodation and everything sorted if you're moving rural. Um, But that kind of leads into this topic about contracts, which everyone wants to know about because as a student where this is your first major job offer, your first time reading a dental contract, it can be quite overwhelming. I remember when I got mine, it's like, what, 50, 60 pages and you don't know what half the words mean. Um, Can we talk through, I guess – what to look for in a contract what are i guess the major red flags in one or how we break down i guess the main points in a contract that we should be looking out for and reading into
0: yeah look i think i think the thing with contracts is there's so many different clauses so the first thing that i would say is is if you've got a heavy contract, where when I'm saying heavy, I mean like a multi-clause, you know, more than just a one page. Like our graduate contracts literally are like one page with maybe five or six points. Um, that's it. Like it, it's it's literally one page. Um, so uh, you know we don't we don't have uh, you know many concerns I guess contractually and legally where a graduates concerned. So we just don't bother giving them. a, You know, people straight out of dental school like. It's a bit of a cost to spend $3,000, $4,000 getting advice from a lawyer about a 30, 40 page contract. So that's something to bear in mind. Um, but when I look at the clauses, uh, you know, in in my position as sort of pseudo helping people that run into trouble with owners and where they're not getting paid properly and the rest of that, um, there's a few common issues in contracts that, that kind of come up. One of the biggest things is retention of money after you've left and the. Um, I guess the conditions under which that money will be released or not released. Um, So I think that has to be really well clarified. You know, it's not enough not to mention the the number of contracts where um, the owner has not got a retention clause in there. So they've got no contractual right to withhold money, but they do it anyway. So I think you know, what I'm advising people now is to actually put in there that there is no retention of any monies after I've left. If that's the intention of the owner, um, you know, actually put that in there. If there is a retention clause of, let's say $5,000, I think 5000 is reasonable for a graduate. You know, if anything more than that, that's just ridiculous because graduates aren't doing massive treatment all the time. So $5,000 for a period of, you know, three to six months is is probably what I would, Agree to um, if I was agreeing to anything. None of our contracts have retention clauses, um, but but five thousand for a period of three to six months I think is is reasonable. And now, under what circumstances would they release it? Well, they have to provide you proof that um, the filling or whatever happened was redone. You know, the work that you did was redone, and uh, you know the cost to the uh, practice to redo that filling. Um, you know, what was the item numbers, all the rest of that. I think. That's pretty fair, you know, not just, oh, yeah, we withheld $5,000 for three months and three months rolls around or six months rolls around, whatever it is. And they go, oh, yep, um, all that $5,000 went into redos. Well, where's the evidence? You know, who, which patients, what, what work needed redoing? Um, So I think that's important. Um, Look, I think restraint clauses are the other one. Um, If you go into rural areas, especially if you're going back home to a rural area where you've lived and grown up, that's where your roots are, that's where your family is, that's where you want to be later, you've got to be really careful of retention clauses, uh, sorry, restraint clauses. Um, And that's, you know, where you can't work a minimum distance from that practice. Now, in rural areas, they're not mega enforceable, but the problem is when you're up against an owner who's financially often in a better position than you and they want to make life hard for you they can and they will and it will become stressful um so make sure you're okay with that um restraint clause you know um and ensure you're reasonable as well, as far as those restraint clauses go. Um, a lot of the times now we're finding restraint clauses aren't really enforceable at all. And in fact, for an SFA, which, you know, I won't get into SFAs in a lot of detail, it is legal. But the problem with SFAs is is a restraint clause undermines the um, integrity of the SFA nowadays. You know, that's what the courts have kind of ruled. So... Yeah, that, that It becomes an employee-like arrangement, so a lot of people with SFAs now don't even have restraint clauses, so that's not a problem. Look, I think the other one is committing and signing uh, a um, contract um, many months before employment and then deciding you don't want to take that job. I've seen many instances instances where owners are going after associates for damages um, because, you know, they hired them in September, October when the best grads were available to them. Um, and then January rolls around when they're meant to start and there's been a change of mind and they don't want to move to that place anymore or whatnot. Owners get really, really upset about that. And, and that can cause massive issues for you because they will, um, you know. That example of the accommodation one, that associate got a 600000 well, you know, almost $700,000 um, demand for damages from an owner where she didn't, because she couldn't, according to her, because she couldn't find accommodation, she couldn't move there. The owner had promised accommodation would be easy, but, you know, had not actually given her any accommodation. So look, I think signing contracts where there's still some time left and, and them being binding, You've just got to be careful not to have a change of mind, I guess. Look, the restraint and the retention are probably the two biggest reasons I see disputes between owners and associates. I think moving away from the actual functionality and the clauses of a contract, um, you know, if you if your first pay is late, and I'm talking a week late, a month late, whatever, it's late, you can kind of probably forgive that. You know, it could be administrative. It could just be – there could be reasons. But if your second pay is late and your third pays late, um or hasn't come yet, um, then you know, you've got to be really careful about not getting yourself in a situation where you're owed 60, 80, 90 thousand dollars of wages, where the owner almost presents the wages as a carrot. Look, you have to come to work and bill. Otherwise, if you don't bill, how am I gonna get the money to pay you from last month? You know, this is something, and then the associate's like, well, you know, when I graduated, I had no money and $5,000 that I earned last month, that's a lot of money. I need to get that money. So I need to keep working this month to get that money. And then this month's money doesn't come. And now I've got $10,000 and I've got, you know, all of that that cycle. So, you know, my strongest advice is cut your losses early, make noise about those owners, you know, tell people about what happened to you. Um, Keep it factual, but tell people because you want to protect. I think one of the biggest issues I've had um, with helping people in the past is there's very few people that want to make their experience public Um, and it limits my ability to go after owners and and to name and shame them because if you're not willing to stand up for what you've told me um you know and and to share your experience then unfortunately it's just going to keep happening you know as soon as i get involved the owner usually does pay um, you know, because a lot of the time they think that no one's going to find out about this, but they, when the when there's a chance of them finding out, they often cough up because they need to keep hiring grads, right? And if they or, or dentists, and if they are known as a non-payer, they're not going to be able to hire dentists. So, look, I think, I think that's. That's something that I could recommend to grads is, is do the people after you a favor and, and just out these sort of people. But look, yeah, I think that's the main things. If you've got any specific questions about specific clauses that people sent in, happy to go through it um, and my thoughts on it. But it is a long topic, but I think these are the two main ones that you need to be concerned about.
1: And I think those are often the main ones that we hear and that we see, you know, come up on DPR and have been major issues and points of discussion in the past. A question one of our listeners did ask was about, you know, can contracts keep you on a fixed term? And I guess this kind of opens this whole can of worms of what happens if you want to break a contract or how do you leave a workplace and that kind of process. And that's something I want to kind of go into is, yeah, leaving workplace if it's not suitable and how you manage that contract from that legal perspective.
0: I would never sign a fixed term contract where you're obligated to work for three years. I would never sign that. Um, Not because, like, one of the biggest reasons I wouldn't sign something like that is you can't predict what's going to happen in your life, right? You can't predict what's going to, you can't predict anything that's out of your control. You can't predict the fact that the nurses at this new practice that you start working at are going to treat you like shit, like you don't know if they are. And so you start to hate life. You start to hate the profession and you can't quit because you're fixed for three years. Like I would never, ever sign a fixed term contract. You know, I, I think certainly reasonable notice any like a month is enough, especially for a grad or even two weeks. Um, Yeah, I, look, I, I wouldn't be signing contracts where it's fixed term because there's so much that you can't control that could affect your experience and your need to leave. So don't trap yourself into that.
1: And so if it's not fixed term, then so long as you're honouring the you know, notice period, then are you free to just leave, walk away? Is there anything else that might bind you?
0: Well, I mean, they would tell you about the notice period. The only other thing that would bind you potentially could be unfinished treatment, especially something like ortho, starting ortho cases, which, you know, as a grad, you may or may not, but um, unlikely to do many. So that's probably not a massive concern, but um, you can't just abandon the patient. You know, you have to finish a course of treatment.
1: Yeah. and what about retainers? This is something that's kind of come up a little bit in discussion as well about retainers, and then even owners not willing to pay the retainer. Can we talk a little bit about what they are and how they work and function? And
0: I don't know how important a retainer is for a grad, right? Right? Um, and if if jobs are offering you retainers, there's one of two reasons they're offering you a retainer. It's usually to an experienced end, or well. You know, One reason is to an experienced dentist where experienced dentists bill a certain amount, right? They, they expect to bill a certain amount and they want the guarantee before they leave their job or, or join your job that they're going to earn a certain amount. So they'll often request a retainer and jobs will provide a retainer to that dentist because they're confident the dentist will earn more than what is in the retainer. So that's one reason for a retainer. The other reason for a retainer is that the job knows that, look, it's not super busy and we don't want to lose the dentist. So we'll give them a minimum amount, even on days where there's not enough patients for them. And it's often those jobs that rescind on the retainer. You know, um, they, they promise you this to lure you there and, you know, they blame the fact that you didn't reach the retainer on you. Like, you know, oh, you know, you're know, you not converting enough treatment, so patients aren't booking back. That's why your books are dead, and so we're not going to pay your retainer. As soon as your retainer doesn't get paid, it's just honestly time to leave because the type of owner that has that character is not going to improve and, and potentially you'll run into more problems, you know. So just take a zero-tolerance policy to it. Like, you know, if they promise you a retainer and you don't get paid your retainer, go. Um, simple as that
1: we've kind of made this bit of like almost a blanket statement Rulers, if you're not getting paid on time if they're not paying you your retainer then those are pretty major red flags to just you know cut your losses early and start looking elsewhere what else and what other situations I guess I guess it differs for everyone but I guess talking about you know other reasons why a job may not be suitable and I think a lot of people from discussions with people end up sitting and are a little bit hesitant about okay they know that the environment's not ideal but they don't know what to do they don't know what's out there if they're going to find something better and perhaps this comes down to what you were saying before about you know working at multiple practices you have something to compare to right and you can compare easily hey this practice isn't as good as the other practice because of staff or because of the mentoring or the support or this that and the other but people who aren't in those environments where this is all they know they're not happy but they can't quite pinpoint why and they don't know their options to look elsewhere maybe we can kind of explore that in terms of okay what should we be assessing in our job for satisfaction I guess what are things that are unideal and then what can we do about it whether we address it with the practice itself or whether we decide that it's a deal breaker and it's time to leave
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, I think go over the deal breakers. One of the biggest deal breakers is is poor infection control at the practice, right? Your own infection control knowledge needs to be there. So you need to know what's not good infection control. The problem with bad infection control is you'll get you yourself as the dentist are responsible for it. Any backlash from APRA or from, um, you know, whatever the regulating authority is, you know, can often be the health department in your state. Um, Some of that's going to fall back on you. So, You've got to, and your license is at stake as well. So I think infection control issues, complete deal breaker, right? Not getting paid on time, not getting paid the right amount, all of that, deal breaker. Just leave. Not getting the respect of the staff is something where you have to go to the owner and make them aware of it. Um, And if that doesn't improve, then, uh, or the owner's not willing to back you and uh, is backing their staff, then that's another red flag, leave, right? I think there's a lot of things that, though, are in a gray area and... What I mean by that is that often, um, you know, I've had I've had graduates that work for me, um, and dentists that work for me, um, that two three years out are earning a shitload, right? Like they they are billing well, they're doing a great variety of procedures. Um, sorry about the language, I saw you smile. <laughs> um, bit, look, uh, we'll um, just have you bleeped out. No, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm pretty candid with my language at times, especially <laughs> if it's something I'm passionate about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So look, I think, you know, I'll have graduates, you know, I had one dentist uh, who, who tried to tell me that her friends in um, some other state were doing really well and earning a lot more than she was earning. And she was one of our highest earners at the time. And it was just, honestly, it was just a bit of bullshit. Um, and so for me, it was like, you know, either your friends are lying to you or you're lying to me. Like that's one of the things that's happening. If, if you think that this is what's going on, what I mean by that is is often people will overplay their jobs and, and, Uh, You know, they don't want to lose face in front of their friends. So if that is the basis for you forming your opinion on your own job, like, you know, you might have been happy and everything seems good or, or you weren't unhappy, but then you hear about something that's happening at another practice that seems too good to be true. Well, honestly, often... Um, while it might not be too good to be true, it's often exaggerated. So if you leave this job hoping for that, well, you could end up in a job that you actually do hate. So you know, I think you have to be. There's certain deal breakers, and, and we've gone through them. But there's certain things where you could run into the trap of thinking the grass is greener when it's not. But I think the best methodology, you know, to, to go into to to set yourself or to be aware of, you know, when it might be time to move on or not. You know, excluding the deal breakers because we've already said there that's off the table. You just leave, but Everything else is, I think before you start a job, um, you want to look at where you want to be in dentistry in two years and in five years, right? You set that goal for yourself. I want to be here and I want to be here. Clinically, um, in the number of hours you're working, in your skill level, your clinical range, you know, what procedures you're doing and what procedures you're competent at, what procedures you're very good at, all of these goals that you have for yourself, you know, how you want your work-life balance to be, all of that. Um, You make a list of all of those things and you prioritize them. What's the highest priority? You know, do I want to be doing um, implants within five years of graduation? That's the number one priority. I want to be doing, uh, I want to be really good at implants within five years of graduation, such that most of my practice after six or seven years will be purely implants, right? Is that your goal? Or is your goal, look, I want to be working four days a week in a job um, that's nine to five that I can leave. I have no troubles. I get along with all the staff. I have a great patient base who come in every six months. It's cruisy dentistry. You know, I'm not, I'll do a couple of crowns and maybe some bridges here and there. I don't want to do orthodontics. I don't want to do implants, but that's, you know, it's a lifestyle job for me. And, uh, or, or is it something else, right? Um, wh- what, and rank it all, like rank them and you've got, you'll have your non-negotiables. This is what I want. And I think you need to be really um, just the same as, as a red flag. If you're non-negotiables, even though there's nothing wrong with the practice itself, but if it's not fitting into your non-negotiable, then you have to leave, right? So I think we'll just don't do that exercise enough. It's more about yourself and what you want to achieve and going into job interviews and being not afraid to ask those questions about the practice and ask the associates that are there, uh, existing, You know, talk to the staff. Like, And is it realistic? Is it – are you on – by being in this job, are you on track for your two-year goal? Are you on track for your five-year goal, clinical, personal, otherwise? Um, and if you're not, well, it's time to leave, right?
1: No, I totally agree. And I think a valuable point that you bring up, and we've mentioned it earlier as well, is just being – taking what your friends and other peers say with a bit of a grain of salt and not fully believing – and not to say that your friends are lying, but – The grass always does appear greener on the other side and what you hear is just a snippet of their day to day and you don't necessarily get the full picture.
2: Do you want to add orthodontics to your general practice? So many patients today are looking for aesthetic outcomes and and changes, things that we can do with things like aligners and fixed braces that can put the teeth where they need to be so we can be more minimal in what we do to those teeth. I know it's something I wanted to learn, and personally, I've gone down the path with OrthoEd doing the mini-masters. I'm also getting treatment myself. I'm in aligners right now. If you're ready to go all in with orthodontics, you can go and do the mini-masters with OrthoEd and Dr. Jeff Hall, and at the end, you can get a postgraduate diploma. But if you're starting off with smaller steps, they even have some online education, including aligners and aligner courses that are standalone. In the COVID environment we're currently in, these courses have remained live, and we can and then go and do them in person later on. I really appreciate the way they've managed that, and I'm still getting tons of value. OrthoEd gives you an understanding from the foundational level. You understand aligners as well as fixed braces, the mechanics, and all the things in between. If you're about to start your orthodontic journey, check out dentalheadstart.com/orthoEd to get 10% off their entire range. You might even run into me at one of the courses.
1: obviously you've been a practice owner for many years now and you've hired a lot of different new grads you would have seen a whole repertoire of different new grads yourself and you know those that excel rapidly those that take a little bit more time to develop what do you say we have a few listeners and like I guess students and new grads who want to know um, what makes an associate successful what defines a successful associate I guess from like a practice owner's point of view and perhaps even personally, because everyone has a different definition of success. But yeah, what would you think are factors that make an associate successful in your eyes?
0: First and foremost, I agree that there's a big range in abilities. If you look at the range of abilities, you know, upon graduation, it's it's like the range can be like that, right? Like a quite a, a steep range. but. After five years, that range narrows, right? Like, yes, the the top is still really good, um, but most people's hand skills develop um, and and they get to a certain communication, all of that conversion. And so there's a much smaller range after five years than there is immediately upon graduation. And the day you cut your first filling prep or cavity prep in second year or whatever it is that you do it, the range is obviously even greater, Right. Um, so that's important to realize that yeah really where you graduate doesn't matter it's I think what matters to employers um, especially employers that are used to hiring graduates Uh, like I said earlier you know if you've um, found yourself in a job where they haven't hired a graduate before unfortunately you could well suffer the consequences of them not knowing where a grad should be you know that's something to be on the lookout for but I think Most owners who have hired graduates are not necessarily that worried about what the differences are in the short term, but what they want is an attitude of growth and an attitude of um, accepting feedback well. I think the attitude of growth, you can break that up, right? The ability to want to um, expand their scope within reason um, and safely, I guess, from a patient perspective And growth in terms of how much work they're willing to put in um, to achieve that. Um, They want. um, Do they are they prepared to work hard and and put in the effort, or do they just want everything for nothing? I think that's important. Um, And attitude-wise, I think the the biggest thing that can lead you to, uh, or the biggest difference between good mentoring and not. Um, from, that you can control as a graduate is your ability to take on feedback from your mentors. And, um, you know, writing in your cover letter that I love feedback, talking about how in your interview, how you love feedback. And then, you know, your senior dentist comes and tells you about uh, a cavity prep that they saw of yours where the filling might have fallen out or, or, you know, you might have called them in to look at a Seric crown prep that you did. Um, and then they give you feedback. And you know they might be, it might be a busy day for them. Like it might be they're rushed, you know, and um, they're very abrupt and short in how they deliver their feedback. They get the main points across, but they're not going to cozy it up for you and use language that's, um, you know, all airy fairy and makes you happy. You know, if you've got that type of mentor or that, uh, you know, that associate, it gives you the knowledge you want. Uh, but then you know you give them the cold shoulder for the next three days because you thought they were a little bit rude, like. Come on, you know, are they gonna give you feedback again? They're not gonna bother. You know, my I have some amazing dentists and you've met them that are really, really good with mentoring, that really are invested in watching a grad grow. Like they they get pleasure from that. That's that's what they want to do. But those same dentists, if they see a grad that has an attitude that stinks, boom, their their attitude to mentoring is no, you can get lost. Like honestly, it can switch really quickly. Um and so you've got to understand that one of the biggest barriers to you getting good mentoring is your ability to accept feedback. And that's not just in, um, you know, uh, that's not just in what you do. It's also in what you say, right? It's it's in the fact that, you know, every morning you come in and you'll greet that dentist and you'll be all bright and bubbly. But the day after the first time they give you feedback, you don't talk to them for the next week. Like, um, you just go into your room and ignore them. Like, you know, that, that type of stuff just stinks of someone who – Thinks they want feedback, pretends they want feedback, but just actually doesn't. So yeah, I think that's super, super important. When you get when you get given suggestions on how to improve, enact those suggestions, right? If people say, "Look, um, you know, your first crown prep didn't go amazing," maybe come in and watch me do a couple, right? I think you should go in and watch them do a couple, right? Um, so uh, you know, I think that's that's an example of something where people have to like listen to the feedback that they're getting look i think the other thing that um is important in the growth of a grad um is to work for an owner that allows you to make mistakes and doesn't come down hard on you when you do make those mistakes right and this is moving away from attitude now like we are harsh on ad- on bad attitudes but we're not harsh on bad clinical outcomes we're not harsh on bad clinical treatment um, we're-, we're harsh on bad attitude, as I said, and we might be harsh on someone who goes beyond their scope continuously. You know, often a grad won't know what the actual scope is in a given situation, like their, their ability in a given situation. And we can forgive that, right? But if we tell you not to take out measly uh, impacted AIDS, And because you're not there yet and you keep trying to do it and things keep stuffing up, well, you know, we're going to come down harshly. Um, And when I say harshly, you know, there's no yelling and screaming. It's just find yourself a new job. Like we've told you multiple times not to do this. Uh, And so I think, look, uh, the the biggest thing you want to do is work for an owner that can forgive clinical mistakes and be rational about them. Because if they're not, then your desire to do certain treatments can be quashed. Um, like just in your own mind. And then your growth in that area can be quashed. And also when you make mistakes, don't beat yourself up about those mistakes, right? Work for an owner that's not going to beat yourself up. And if they don't beat you, beat you up, like don't beat yourself up. So the worst thing that can happen, unfortunately, for grads, and I see this time and again, especially with root canals um, and crown preps, is things go wrong, right? You get a pulpal exposure or like, let's say um, you insert a crown, you bond it in and you didn't check the margin properly and there's an open margin and now you have to cut off an Emacs. And,
1: oh, hey, you know, I did that off, last week.
0: <laughs> yeah, cutting off an Emacs for a um, for a graduate is, is a lot difficult than it is for an experienced gra- a dentist. And for an experienced dentist, it's probably one of the worst things they'll ever do, right? So, um, you know, if, if that happens... Don't lose your mojo, you know? Um get in there, get in the preclinic, you know, on model teeth or whatever and start cutting crown preps and practicing and practicing until you get your confidence up again. Um, because crown and bridge, um, you know, is one of the most important areas in dentistry. You know, you talked, you you said something earlier about owners having KPIs and whatnot. Like, I don't think owners should have hourly rate KPIs at all, but I think owners are well within their right to ensure that the patients, their practice, are getting offered the ideal treatment. And the d- dentist has a reasonable level of conversion to ideal treatment because that is, yes, it's probably profitability, you know, let's let's tackle the elephant in the room. You do more crown and bridge, there's more profit, right? You earn more, there's more profit for the practice. But also crown and bridge often is the best outcome for the patient. So if you don't have the skills to either convert patients to that treatment or if you don't have the confidence to do the treatment, so you're not offering it, both of those are things where you know I can easily hear graduates saying oh my own is all about crowns well no they're not they're all about the patient getting the ideal treatment and if you've got a grad alongside you that's done 30 crowns and you've done five in the first 12 months well you know when it comes time to review your pay and and talk about you know where you should be there is going to be that comparison there is going to be you know is it another year of staying on a salary instead of going on to commission like that conversation will have to be had. Look, I think if you are someone who has had a bad experience at a major dental area um, and that then leads to you cutting off that area, that's one of the worst things that can happen for your development um, as a graduate. So um, keep that in mind um, in terms of you know what owners look for and, um, and all of that. So be responsible, but at the same time, you know, you have to take some risks to extend your scope. Um, you have to push the boundaries of your scope to extend your scope. You know, if your scope's here and you keep doing stuff here, well, this is never going to go up, right? But if you do stuff here and here and here and here, this is slowly going to give a bit more and that's how you grow. Um, so if you're not willing to do that, then yeah, unfortunately, that's that's not ideal.
1: Yeah. Mistakes is something that we talk quite openly, I talk quite openly about on the podcast as well, because, you know, we mentioned before as well that people can be, we love to share our successes, but we may not necessarily share the challenges and the struggles as openly and candidly. Um, I always do my best to share them on the podcast just to give people an idea that, Hey, we're not, you're not alone. We all go through it as new grads. We all make these mistakes. Um, And yeah, very much all the things that you said before is just as a new grad, what I've realized is when you make a mistake, it feels like it's the end of the world because you don't have that sample size to compare with. You know, if you have an open margin or you have an open contact or, you know, you've perforated a tooth, when you haven't done all that many, it's really troublesome. And that context perspective, you don't really have that. So it can be very stressful. And if you're with a, mentor or a senior dentist who doesn't give you that grace and isn't you know who's harsh on you for making those mistakes you can feel really incompetent but then I've seen the world of difference it makes when you have mentors who say hey you know that happens if you haven't made that mistake before you haven't done it enough um, and then treating it rather as okay, like objectively, this is what's happened, this is how we fix it and how we go from there um, is a lot more conducive to growth than berating you or, you know, getting angry at you for making this error and blaming you um, for it because that doesn't really teach you much. If anything, you feel guilty and you're probably less inclined to go to that person again for help or for advice. Going forwards. But at the same time, as you said, it's a lot about the attitude. You know, I think a lot of it comes down to putting our ego aside and owning up to the fact that, hey, I didn't do this that well. It can be intimidating and daunting bringing your work to a senior dentist who you admire and you think that they do brilliant work and showing them your shoddy crown prep (laughs) for their assessment, but it's something that you have to do if you want to grow. Um, And as you said before, just putting the ego aside, being open to the feedback, it may be harsh, um, but if you want to grow from it, that might be, um, yeah, the only way forwards, right? Look, I think
0: I think just a word on that. I think those dentists that you do look up to and admire that you know, let's just call them clinical gods like Paul, your brother is is one example of of that. Those dentists are usually quite humble and they're they're quite humble because they've seen what it takes to get to where they are clinically. And so, you know, guys like that will will be very, very open to, to giving you feedback, to help you grow. Um, those dentists, um, you know, they're, they're not about the ego themselves. I mean, obviously, they want to get to the top of the field um, and there is a certain amount of ego that that comes with that. Like, you have to have that amount of ego to get to be the best. But that, you know, in, in how that come, comes across to people that they're mentoring, well, they know what they went through and they know the steps, you know. It's, it's often, more often than not, the mid-tier dentists that are the ones that to make themselves feel better, feel that they're going to take it out on someone who's inferior to them and it, and it makes them feel better. And those are the pretenders that, you know, probably don't want the feedback off anyway. So look, I, I think, yeah, if you feel intimidated about going to one of these dentists that, that are really good clinically, because your work doesn't compare to them, I think it's the opposite, to be honest. I think that they are more than open and willing to share feedback.
1: So, no, we've had a lot of people talk about, you know, before you we have had this discussion about how to be a successful associate and the attitude you need to have in terms of, you know, being open to feedback, having um, being receptive to yeah, ways that you can improve. What other ways can we, as a new grant and as dentists, maximize our income in terms of the dentistry that we're practicing um, to achieve a lifestyle that we may desire, where we're not necessarily working as many hours and as many days, but able to sustain ourselves.
0: Yeah, look, Erica, I think if it's from a pure income point of view, and I'm not saying that's a negative thing. Um, or that's a negative question at all i think it's a very very uh, valid question and a good one the biggest thing that you can do is learn crown and bridge learn to do crown and bridge well you need to be able to efficiently do crown preps know when to do crowns but most importantly so crown preps and and crown and bridge um number one if you want to maximize your earnings but the communication of those things and that comes on from the confidence of being able to do the procedure well but also, some sales training and some actual communication training on how to have conversations with your patients that um, increase the chances of them accepting the ideal treatment. Um, I think those two things are fundamental to high earnings in dentistry. And I'm not even talking about doing rehabs or full smile makeovers because, you know, unless you work in a practice that's geared that way, you won't be exposed to lots of patients that can afford or want to go ahead with big smile makeover cases, right? Nowadays, because of the marketing and the way that practices are built, most patients are going towards practices that do a lot of this, that market for a lot of this. and so I'm not even talking about, you know, smile makeovers, rehabs, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the single crowns, the double crown, or like the two units, the three unit bridges, all of that. Like I think communicating the need for a crown, um, why a patient needs one, good photography, all of that, um, and being confident in actually performing the treatment is the most important things, right? If you think about it, right, you've got a day of, uh, let's say, 30-minute checkup and cleans, Um Or recalls, I should say. Um, So, you know, recall, check, um, clean, 30 minutes, um, 16 of those times $200 um, an appointment. Um, Let's just say you don't take x-rays on any of them because they're not due. Roughly charging $200 for a checkup and clean or recall and clean, 16 of those in an eight-hour day. You know, what is that? That's 3200 a day of billing. You do one crown and that takes you, you know, on CEREC, let's say it takes you three hours. In eight hours, you can do two and a bit of those, like almost three of those. And you're billing two grand or 1800 per tooth. 1800 times three, you know, that's 5400 of billings. That's, you know, it, it's a lot more it's, it's like 60 to 70% more just by doing crowns. I'm not saying you do crowns all day, right? But What I'm saying is even if you do eight checkup and cleans and one crown, um, that's going to be a lot better than you know, using that crown time to only do checkup and cleans. I think that's the biggest thing that recent grads can do to achieve a higher level of income. Um, you know, I think aiming for four, four and a half grand a day after two years out is not unreasonable at all. But that means that you're getting conversion to crowns, basically. It's a long topic and we could obviously go into, you know, doing implants, doing ortho, doing rehab, all of that. But that's going to come five, seven, eight years after often, uh, you know, and, and implants as good as they are, you know, they're not always super high billing in the, in the early days. You know, it's going to take your time. But being able to, you know, cut a crown prep in 45 minutes um, and have a temporary put on there um, and the patient dismissed in an hour. Um, and doing a reasonable, like a, a good job of that and, and being reasonably efficient, that's where your earnings are going to come from. So look, yeah, I, I think to sum it up, that's probably the, the area. Obviously, um, if, you, if someone's got any more specific questions about particular procedures, happy to go into it. Um, but yeah, if I was to answer the biggest impact on earnings, it's the ability to communicate treatment and the ability to get patients to accept ideal treatment and then being very good at crown and bridge.
1: Yeah, and I think a big part of that, and you mentioned it before as well, is the fact that it's ideal treatment, and obviously you're not, you know, proposing to crown every single tooth <laughs> that walks through the door, but rather I think one of the things that happens as new grads is we have this fear of over diagnosing. But then as a result of that, you end up undiagnosing. I think that's a big common trend that happens. Um, And then as a result, you don't necessarily propose ideal treatment for the patient. And I guess in some ways that's doing them a disservice, right? Um, But then it all comes down to your understanding, but also the way of communicating that well to the patient. To kind of wrap up the um, podcast episode, one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on, and it's Again, something that we see time and time again, lots of posts, a lot of anonymous posts in particular on DPR coming from new grads and students is you know, them doubting their suitability for dentistry um, and because of the stress that they're experiencing or the sh- expectations that they have of themselves and their clinical abilities um, and how they respond to you know, making mistakes and things not going well. How do you feel when you see these posts happen, I guess, quite often? on the forums and how does it make you feel
0: this is a this is a complex answer um this is a, a complex question and i hope that people aim to understand my entire answer when i when i'm answering this way look you know when you've got a grad experiencing that three months out i think what doesn't get talked about enough like uh, you, you you know you see plenty of posts like this on dpr and you see plenty of great answers. But what doesn't get said enough is a certain proportion of those people feeling that, feeling that way at three months should not be in the profession. Like, like that literally does not get discussed, right? And, you know, you can argue that at three months' time that that's not the right time to make that decision. And that can be a fair argument. But there are a certain proportion of people where objectively um, in two years' time, the right decision for them looking back would have been to quit the profession at that time. And so that doesn't get talked about enough, I think. At the three-month mark, if you're feeling like you're not doing great, I agree with most people where they're like, it's too early to tell, you've got to work hard, you've got to um, give yourself a break, you've got to um, you know, step back a little bit from the profession and perhaps even seek another job if, the, if that's what you know could be the cause of the stress. But I think if you're feeling that way still at 12 months' time, still at 18 months' time, still at three years' time, well, you know, I don't care that you've studied for five years, seven years, eight years, and you've put in all this effort um, and you don't want to disappoint your parents. The thing is we have a high rate of suicide in this profession, right? That That is just there. Um, and so persisting in this job just because you think you have to um, or you think things are going to get better for you, uh, I think is, is the absolute worst advice that you can give someone three years after feeling this way. And I say that, honestly, from personal experience, you know, I got super, super lucky. I got super lucky that I um, stumbled upon a business that was really profitable and doing super well. Um, And so by doing that, I hated clinical dentistry. I could not have found myself still in clinical dentistry. The first 18 months to two years post-graduation, I worked hard, you know, I worked 50, 60-hour weeks, and I got burnt out. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that my business was doing well, I would have had no financial out. By being successful in that way, I was able to do quite well. The, the thing is, people that don't have that, they're just an associate, they didn't buy their first business and they hate dentistry. You know, for me, objectively staying in dentistry full time, like I did, I didn't, sorry, because you know, my business started doing well, so I could fall back, um, I could pull away clinically um and you know uh, within 10 years of graduation I'd quit clinical dentistry altogether and the clinical dentistry that I was doing was honestly the part that I loved which was wisdom teeth surgery for a lot of the you know the last five years of my career was basically all wisdom teeth and so I've been there and I've done that and I for me it would have been objectively the wrong thing to do stay in the profession and unfortunately when these questions get asked on DPR people just don't want to face up to that reality for that person. Like, and the I think the advice that gets given is, is heavily biased one way um, to the detriment of some dentists. So if you're a dentist who's thinking that this career is not right for you, all I'm saying is leave open the opportunity that it actually isn't right for you. Beyond that, I think everyone's offered great advice. But it's, it's a career where by its very nature, right, you're doing highly technical work, if you're a perfectionist yourself, you're also faced against patients that are not always the most pleasant people around. They hate being at the dentist. They hate paying the money it costs to come to the dentist. And sometimes you're with disgruntled staff who feel overworked and who treat you like shit, right? And all of that stuff can combine to to just cause a very unpleasant experience for you. And if it's choosing between someone being alive and and enjoying their life versus just quitting the profession, well, I would rather they quit. Any day of the week. Um, yeah, and, and that that honestly is is the truth and the way that I see it. I know that's gonna be a polarizing answer, but it, it is my honest belief on this topic.
1: I think it's important though. Like you're playing almost devil's advocate from coming from a different perspective, but I think it's an important perspective to come from, to be like, hey, maybe it's not right for you and why I wanted your opinion in particular on it novas because you don't work clinically anymore. And as you said, you didn't enjoy um, working clinically. And I think the reality is clinical dentistry isn't for everyone. Not to say necessarily that you know dentistry isn't right for them. Like you yourself, you're still involved in dentistry, but just not the clinical aspect of it anymore. And one of the things that we do on the podcast often is to show people all the different avenues that you can go down in dentistry, that may not necessarily be clinical, whether it be practice ownership or whether it be you know education or you know going in and you know people start up their own companies, whatever it may be, you know practice management softwares, um, being reps for different brands and um, companies. There's a lot of different avenues that you can explore that may not necessarily be just clinical dentistry um and so i think it's a it's a fair point that you come from just you know giving it a fair chance but not beating it and continuously trying to you know beat the same point across if it's not doing you and you're saying you've been doing it for two three four years because how sustainable is that in the long term do you want to be in that profession um long run and not be happy in it right do you have any final thoughts or any final comments you wanted to leave with you know all the new grads and students, I guess, that are listening in? Any last pieces of advice that you wanted to wrap things up with for people, I guess, as they go into this job hunting season um, and start looking for their first or their, a new job potentially?
0: Yeah, look, I think I think come January next year, um, the job market's going to be very different to what it is even today. Um, I think we're entering a phase of the economy where it's not – You know, it's not going to be easy for consumers to spend money and allocate money to to their teeth. And so I think especially coming off some of the highs that we had um, in the last two to three years post-COVID, things are going to be a lot different. Um, And how you as a graduate position yourself in terms of applying for your job, um, all of that, you know, and that's obviously a a topic that we can discuss at length. But... uh, I think the the next few months are critical. Um, if you can start to get some photos of your work, um, that can help a lot in applying for jobs coming up. Also, you know, there's a chance that what I'm talking about with respect to the economy is just shifted back three to six months where the pain isn't felt till even just, you know, March, April, May, June next year, um, where you get into a job, things seem busy, you've got patience. But... Um, then really quietens down. Just understand that that's probably the economy. It's not necessarily yourself. And, you know, this is a time where, um, yeah, as I said, dentistry is going to be very different to what it is. But what you need to do is set yourself apart as a graduate. You know, the graduating class of last year had had it probably as easy as I've seen ever. Uh, You know, most people had jobs come October, November before they even graduated. Not most, if not all, had jobs pretty much before they graduated. But that's not the same, I think. That's not going to be the same this year. So look, position yourself in a way, you know, start applying for jobs early, start putting yourself out there, um, start visiting practices, yeah, and and really look to upskill yourself clinically uh, and get into a position that that does offer you those things that you want, um, that we talked about, your non-negotiables, your um, nice-to-haves, um, yeah, I think that's that's vitally important coming up.
1: Beautiful. Well, thank you, No, for joining us again on the Dental Head Start Podcast. It's been awesome hearing your perspective on all of these um, questions that people have had and I think it will be beneficial even four times, yeah, yeah, uh, months to come, years to come by the sounds of it since people are still listening to your episode from that many years back. I guess this is an update um, version of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, thanks for having me, Erica. I really appreciate you giving up your time to, to allow me to chat